There is nothing for the young in this country that can attract them or us unless it's the vision of progress for the future. listening to the Water Cooler podcast of the Menzies Research Centre. I'm Nick Cater. I'm Senior Fellow at the Menzies Research Centre. The last time I presented one of these, I was Executive Director, but we've had some shuffling of chairs here at the Menzies Research Centre. And I'm delighted to say that the first of my two guests today is David Hughes, the new Executive Director. David, welcome. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Very pleased that you're staying on at the MRC and it's big shoes to fill for me. David, your previous experience was in policy and advising to three prime ministers and one opposition leader. Tell me about it. I've been blessed. I've had a great opportunity, been exposed to a lot over the last 18 years or so. I've been working in and around government and in and around the Liberal Party. I started with Tony Abbott when he was opposition leader. Great opportunity there, learnt a lot from Tony and we did some incredible work there coming from opposition to government in a short period of time which gives me hope, given the current circumstances that the Liberal movement's in as well, federally, that we can rebuild quite quickly. Learned a few lessons from that time, things that can be used again in this current context. I continued on and worked with a gap in between. I didn't go straight into Malcolm Turnbull's office, but I was asked to come in and serve there for a year or so, and then continued on with, with Scott Morrison when he was Prime Minister. A lot happened in those few years. We obviously went through covid There's some things that we did well, some things that if we had our time again, we would do differently. But it had a great experience there overall and and worked closely with UNIC at the MRC through that period as well. And I see great capacity for us to do a lot on the policy front now that the resources of government are gone. In government, you have hundreds of people you can rely on to contribute on the policy front, and that doesn't exist at the moment. MRC can fill that role to an extent. I'm very optimistic about what we can do on that front. Yeah, and podcasts have been a great medium for us. We have very good listenership to this. It's two things, really. One, it's a chance to talk to a wider audience. But the other thing is a chance to have conversations amongst ourselves, which we would naturally be having anyway. We do it with an audience. So it's in terms of working out policy, in terms of the issues. And we thought we'd start today with one of the big issues. I think one of the big challenges facing the Liberal Party, but the Conservative movement more generally around the world. And that is, if you like, how do we attract The millennials, I guess, is the big challenge. The millennials who are not voting Liberal, or they are, they're reluctantly voting Liberal perhaps, but we'll talk about that in a second. The millennials in the generation below, which is what, I don't know. Gen Z. Gen Z, there we go, we have a Gen Z here. Freya, welcome to Watercooler Podcast. Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm super excited to be here. Good. So I should introduce you. Freya was the Liberal candidate for Balmain, that's in the state election, right? Yeah, that's right. And you are a liberal. You're studying finance and law at Sydney University. Yeah. (laughs) Not a bad place to be studying something. And uh, you previously worked in macroeconomics and policy research. Yes, I did. Yeah. So I was at UBS. I started when I finished high school. I did a cadetship at UBS, which is an investment bank. And I was in the macroeconomics team within equities research. Then went and worked at a think tank, then ran for Balmain. And now I have the privilege of being here. That's great. David, perhaps you'd like to kick off the conversation on this. We know the demographic challenge. We know the electoral challenge that at the last federal election, certainly if you go to the under 35 category, under 35 women voted Liberal least of all, slightly behind the Greens. Labour first, Greens second, 
Liberal third, under 35 men. The coalition just got into second place. It's not good, is it? Now, how do we go about changing this? Perhaps we might throw to Freya in a minute because she might have the answers to this, but what do you think? Well, firstly, very impressed about hearing all that Freya's achieved in her 20 years on on this planet. Uh, Very, very impressive. Look, Nick, it's a challenge, but framing it as a challenge, I I guess framing it in that negative sense defines how you're going to approach it as, as well. So it's also an opportunity. We need to, the first step with this, with younger Australians and with other cohorts that you may have mentioned that we need to win back support from, we need to engage them. We need to listen to them. We need to hear directly from them about the issues, the high priority issues in their lives, in their friends' lives, in their families' lives, the biggest challenges that they're facing, the things that they're grappling with and talking about around the dinner table with their friends. We need to hear directly from them about what those issues are. I think in the past we've tried to define them ourselves or we've made assumptions as to what those issues may be we've tried to develop solutions and we haven't always consulted and engaged those groups there young australians chinese australians females in that demographic that you mentioned what we really need to do now and we've got the time we've got plenty of time before the next election federally we need to listen to those groups we need to engage them we need to include them as much as we can in the policymaking process as well. And I think what you'll find is that the issues that these groups identify as being high priorities might not be the ones that we assumed were the highest priorities. For instance, with young Australians, I think we'll find that that mental health is a key issue. People think with young Australians that housing and entering entering the housing market is going to be right up there, and I'm sure it would be if we we were to speak to a lot of young Australians, and we'll hear from Freya, but I think we'll also find issues like mental health are going to be right up there as well. So that's what we need to do, we have an obligation to do, and that's what we hope to contribute to at the MRC, is talking directly to these groups and finding out what those issues are, and then second step is obviously working with them to find solutions. You've outlined a thesis there, let's say that thesis, now let's test that with our uh, our millennial or... (laughs) <laughs> Younger than a millennial. Don't call me a millennial. I'm only just a millennial. I think I scrape in by a few years. Well, I've just insulted you by calling you a millennial. Right, right, okay. <laughs> Gen Z. So, mm. I, first of all, those issues that David's outlined, are they broadly in your thinking yeah. about what's top of the agenda? Oh, I definitely think so. And I think if you look, the most effective way, I think, to do this is to look back at how the Liberal Party was founded and what it was founded to do. So if you look at Menzies' Forgotten People's speech, he talks about the home material, the home human, the home spiritual. And now think about millennials in Gen Z and their connection to those three pillars of really our party's philosophy. Home material, well, home ownership rates are the lowest since World War II, I believe. Home human, we've seen record levels of loneliness, of isolation, of disconnection from family, singleness even, which people don't really talk about. And then home spiritual, there's clearly a crisis of meaning because suicide is the leading cause of death for young people. Church attendance, community involvement, all of this stuff is really at record lows. So from my perspective, when I look at my peers and my generation, it's not really a surprise that we are where we are because what liberal philosophy and what our party stands for, uh, it's, it's kind of being lost among our generation. 
And I think it leads us to a really interesting conclusion as a party because the Liberal Party is conservative and classical liberal, but we are now asking people not to conserve the status quo because the status quo is not home material. It's not home human. It's not home spiritual. So we're actually asking them to subscribe to a different vision for our country. And it's quite countercultural, really, to what Gen Z and millennials are being taught in our education system, what we hear on social media. So it's presenting this really interesting challenge for us where we're a conservative party that is actually now quite radical for our culture. It's fascinating. It's something that struck me upon taking this job as well, looking over the principles that Sir Robert Menzies founded the movement on and how they are still relevant, still just as relevant as they were back then as well and will resonate with younger people. It gave me some confidence, made me more optimistic as well, taking on this challenge that many will say we need to start from scratch and rebuild Mm. as a movement and there are certain things that we do need to address, certainly on the organisational side of our party, but in terms Mm. of the values that we were provided by Sir Robert Menzies and other founders from the 40s and 50s that contributed immensely to our movement, there was a foresight there. They realised that these needed to be enduring and they are. So I'm really encouraged, Frey, to hear that uh, interpretation from you as well. That's right. And one of the things we believe as conservatives is that human nature really doesn't change all of that much. There, We all want meaning. We all want connection. We all want deep roots in our community. And we don't have that at the moment. And I think you see that. You see that. I think all young people have friends that suffer with mental illness, as you talked about, and just a hopelessness. And so I think that's where, as a party and as a movement, really, liberalism is a message of hope. We're not victims. This is where you're beginning to worry me, Freya. <laughs> hopelessness. This is You've got everything to look forward to as your generation, and yet you mm. think there is this feeling of hopelessness out there. Yeah. Uh, why is that? Where, can you put a reason on that? I think it's a combination of things, but I don't think I could distill it down to one reason but it's palpable it is so palpable in terms of the emotion that that people attach to things like climate change things like men and women sort of feminism it's so emotionally charged because i think there is a sense that what as young people do we really have to live for and it's very sad so one of the most revealing comments i saw on my tiktok actually the other day was someone said why would we be conservatives when there's nothing to conserve and i think that is true that is a genuine sentiment among my generation that actually is there really anything good about our country there is but they don't see that because they've been told that from its origin australia it's seriously problematic and and we're seeing that now it's unfortunate that the media and i'm not just blaming the media here but our culture is always seeking to divide Mm. you're either for something or against something it's a binary proposition with all these debates you have to be on one side or the other you don't have time to make up your mind to listen to the arguments i'm sure it's always existed for every generation but those pressures Mm. 
seem much more heated at the moment for your generation. I'm sure you see that. You're at the forefront of that yeah. from a cultural perspective. At Sydney University, no doubt you see that all the time. It puts a lot of pressure on young developing minds as well. And it's not surprising that so many have a bleak outlook, as, mm. you've, as you've explained. It's a fundamental problem mm. for our country and something that does need to change. And I hope that it does. And I think some people, particularly in my generation, are coming to the realisation that it doesn't really have to be that way. I think that that's right. And one of the interesting things that we see now is if you disagree with someone, you don't just disagree with their position on a certain issue. They are actually now a bad person. And that's some of the dialogue we've been seeing around the voice is like that. It's, oh, you might disagree with the voice, therefore you must be racist. That's not true. Or therefore you must be a bad human being. And so we've lost a lot of the ability to actually distinguish between a person's views and their moral character. And I think social media is to blame for a significant chunk of that because the algorithms are designed that you actually get stuck in echo chambers and bubbles. And then, yeah, all of these issues have just become so emotional. Well, thanks for throwing us right into these. You've thrown up about enough for 10 podcasts there, okay? (laughs) I just want to go back to this point about hopelessness. We have never lived in such able times in terms of technology. I mean, the technology we've got can do so much, right? And has the potential to do so much more. We can solve human problems with technology. We know that because we're constantly solving them, even probably the big ones. You've also, growing up, you are the most in the most prosperous era that Australia and the Western world, in fact, indeed, the whole world has ever felt. There is material impact or material impact on the amount of poverty in the world. It's much smaller, the amount of famine. Everything seems to be getting better. I just don't really understand why you'd feel so hopeless. So perhaps you can enlighten me. Again, it's those enduring characteristics of human beings. Community, connection, family. And that is all a spiritual well-being, whether that is religious or not, just, just a sense of meaning beyond ourselves. All of that is declining. And it's, so it's no wonder to me that this is happening. That's not politics, of course. We're, we're on to mm. face that. And I think... But it, it's sort of linked, right? Because I think what has happened is on social media particularly this sort of crisis of meaning among young people bears itself out then in politics because the radical green agenda of we have these these utopian ideals of a totally peaceful clean green world that that's appealing to people because that's actually a vision for the future that they can then subscribe to and get behind and be an activist on social media for and i think the challenge for the liberal party and for the conservative side of politics is presenting an alternative vision for what we want our country and our state and our world to look like which i don't think we've really done for young people David, this is interesting because when I first started to look, probably 10 years ago, longer than that, around the time I wrote my book, at what made a constituency green. Why was Melbourne the first lower house seat to become a green seat? And it still is. What made Melbourne different? And what I noticed, if you go into the census statistics, is the category no religion. People who say, tell the sentence they've got no religion. It was the highest in Melbourne at that time, at about 45%, I think, and it almost perfectly matched the Green primary vote. And so is that what we're getting at? Is the Green 
religion or green faith perhaps can we see that as a substitute for old time religion if you like and is that something we need to think about it does tie into what Frey was saying which i'd like to address as as well i think we need to as I, and i'll get to the point you you just made there i'm not sure i've got the answer but i'll address it the the point that Frey was making is that young people i think this is a point you're making at least young people are attracted to a positive optimistic mm message and it's why the vision that the greens maybe some teal candidates would put forward mm. would be instinctively attractive to them the message that the liberal party has often put forward is a negative one and i would argue that it's needed to be a negative one given the threats that our country has faced at various times mm. uh, we've also tried to put forward a positive vision as well yeah. in relation to the importance of a strong economy and mm our achievements in the defence and foreign affairs space as well mm. and the importance of protecting our sovereignty. And we've had some great reforms in the education and health space as well that we've spoken about positively. But I guess for young people, they might not be particularly relevant to their lives, particularly young people who aren't yet entrenched in the tax system as well or exposed to the same volatility on the economic front that, that older people are. So our positive vision might not have been positive enough and might not have resonated with those touch points that are important for young people. Mm -hmm. So they look for that elsewhere and the utopian vision that the Greens present is appealing. I think that's an interesting point you made, Nick, about the census statistics and no religion correlating with Greens vote. No doubt about it from what I've seen in my time in, in, in government, the resistance that the Greens have to any influence that religion plays not just in government but in society it's something that they I think would like to weaken I won't use the word eradicate but it's something that at every opportunity I think they've tried to weaken I can see the positive influence that church groups provide to communities as well and in many respects and we saw this during COVID as well filling that void that mm. the state can't do everything and I think religious groups and community groups do an incredible job in making our society and culture here in Australia one of the best in the world. I'd just jump onto that. In Balmain, where I ran, so Roselle, which is a suburb in Balmain, which is actually where I live, has the highest proportion of people that tick no religion on the census, and it has the highest Greens vote. So it actually proves that point true. And it's an enduring yeah. point. It's so interesting. I, it's interesting that you've actually done research on that because that's exactly what you find in Balmain. And I saw it head on during the election. And I think also to your point before, David, marketing 101 or really messaging is you start with the problem, then you provide the solution. Problem, solution, problem, solution. And perhaps what we as a party and as a movement have done is for young people, we've misdiagnosed the problem. They've never lived through a recession. They don't understand the problems with that. But what have they seen? Well, they have seen their friends suffering from severe mental health illness. They have gone through an education system and a and lots of them really do strongly believe that climate change is the biggest threat we're going to face. So I think we have to take that seriously from their perspective. So that's one of their big problems. So we have to provide a solution and we can't misdiagnose the problems. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. 
Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Let's start with that claim that they think that climate change is an existential problem and we just have to accept that. But it's not an existential problem, at least not in my analysis and in the analysis of a lot of people who I talk to, people that have studied this in great detail, scientists, engineers, that the climate change is a thing in that the climate is changing and noticeably warmer by about, I think, one degree over the last hundred years, but it is not yet an existential crisis. I don't believe so. First of all, do you, and then let's take it from there. Do you want to disagree with what I've just said? I don't think I'm qualified to either agree or disagree, really. I have not probably done as much work on it as you have or other people. So I don't really, I haven't come to a settled position. But I do think that it's very important for young people. And whether we like it or not, it seems to be the way things are going. And energy, I think the more interesting issue is not climate change per se, but energy security and energy sufficiency and making sure power remains cheap. So for me, and from my perspective, that's actually what really matters. And then pragmatic conservation. Because conservation of the environment is a conservative value. We want to leave, we want to steward the resources we have now and leave it in a good position for the next generation. That's conservative. And then you have the other side, which is energy security. So from my perspective, it's pragmatic conservation and energy security that are the two critical issues. I'm very happy to have a debate about energy security. It's something we talk about a lot at the Mentors Research Centre, about energy policy generally. I guess my point is, though, if, if we concede that climate change is an existential crisis and that it is really pressing and that the world as we know it will disappear in 30 years or whatever time scale you want to put on it then that has an impact for policy it has a very shocking and severe impact for policy it means you have to throw everything at the problem and it becomes very expensive you start devoting a lot of a lot of resources both money and policy attention in that area and you miss other things so I guess what I'm saying is to, to what extent can we go down the road of conceding that it is this existential crisis or do we in the end of the day have to say, look, in our judgment, it's not. I'm sorry if you disagree with me, but if you disagree with me, you might want to vote green. This is so challenging. This is so challenging because I actually heard John Anderson talking about this the other day. You have to almost create a constituency for policy that you want to implement or not implement. So one thing I think we need to do as a party is reframe the debate around if climate change is a big issue, which a lot of people think it is, and lots agree, disagree, but lots do think it is. We have to take that seriously. We actually are still a party of the free market, and big government is not 
our modus operandi. That is not how we operate. And so perhaps we need to place more of an emphasis on enabling private investment. And that would entail lifting the ban on nuclear energy, doing things like that, that take the pressure off government to even intervene and say, we're going to fix this big issue and just say, if it is an existential threat, then the market and businesses operating to create profit and survive as a business in an economy that functions, they will move towards a net zero future anyway. And you do see that. So in finance, there are businesses that are moving in that direction and they do think that that's the correct way to go. So I think this comes back to actually retaining a small government and letting letting private enterprise and individuals decide what they think the future should be. I'm going, to, I'm going to put everybody on the spot here. I'm happy to say that I wasn't happy at the time, but on reflection, I definitely think that a commitment for the zero 2050 was a policy mistake. I can go on and expand on why that is. David, you were in the government that made that decision. What do you think? I worked with Angus Taylor, who was our minister, minister at the time, quite closely. His focus was on the great advancements that we can make with technology to reduce emissions. And this was already actually happening, Nick. Technology was becoming cheaper. It wasn't necessarily reliable, and we've seen a lot of that where there's been concerns around reliability of these new technologies and the need for old-fashioned generation through coal, through gas, to fill that void. And we're seeing that at the moment in New South Wales where we're almost falling off it bit of a supply cliff with 10 or 20% of our generation capacity being shut down and these new technologies not being there. But over time, technology does become cheaper. It does become more reliable. Nuclear, I think, is a discussion that we should be having in Australia at the moment. Your generation, Nick, views on nuclear were tainted because of various actions in the Pacific region from from France and from the UK as well here in, in Australia. We know New Zealand have a blanket ban. We, we have actually had some great success with nuclear technology here in Australia with our ANSTO reactor providing isotopes for nuclear medicine, which are saving lives. We've now embarked on AUKUS and there doesn't seem to be much resistance from any generation, mm. not Nick's, not mine. Mm. And I think it's a type of technology that could be embraced by younger Australians. I know you asked me a question, Nick, and I've partly answered it, but I'd be very keen to hear what Freya thinks of perceptions amongst 20-year-olds, 25-year-olds, 18-year-olds when it comes to this new technology that we've got that we could potentially use for our generation in the form of small modular reactors. Well, I think there's a lot of openness to new technology because my generation has seen a lot change we have gone from i was born in 2002 and technology was nowhere near what it was now and i've basically grown up and my peers have as well we've grown up through the emergence of this transformative technology of smartphones of laptops of internet of social which was my media. point at the start but 2002 try 1972 but, <laughs> but yeah sure it's there right so yeah. doesn't this excite you No, it does. But it excites me. But I think there's still there are blinders on because of all of these other sort of 
issues going on for Gen Z. And, and social media presents its own challenges. And we've seen that in the statistics. Kids, my generation has grown up with social media in their pockets. But to your point about nuclear energy, I think there's a lot of openness to change and reform and progress, which is why I'm optimistic about the Liberal Party's future among young people, because we are not a party opposed to reform. We just want the right reform and we want the right sort of progress. And so I think with the nuclear submarines, people are, everyone's open to that with small modular reactors. If it works, I don't see why there'd be any sort of resistance. And on your point about, I think defence is a really interesting sort of area for young people because while you're hopelessness, you also see a sense of insecurity from a lot of young people, which makes a lot of them quite pro-defence investment from among my friends. So I think pushing hard on the we are the party of security, whether that's militarily or economically, uh, that's a really interesting line that could make significant inroads with young people. You've hit something here, and that is that we're not very good about telling our own story, but we just make assumptions that people understand what we represent as liberals. We're not, we're not, we're not telling people what that is. No. And it, I sense that amongst, particularly amongst your demographic, but the millennials and maybe some older Australians too, they've got to thinking that we are the conservative party, as you say, that we are just about conserving things. Whereas, of course, that's not what we're about at all. We're the Liberal Party. We're about change. We're about a gradual change, change which respects our institutions, brings people along with it, essentially. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're also fundamentally about the freedom of the individual mm-hmm. and we'd rather empower people than governments yeah. and organisations. That, to me, seems to be a message which should instantly mm-hmm. be lapped up by people of any generation is are we just not telling that story right or is it that young people actually don't want freedom these days i think we're not telling the story right because if you go and ask a group of 18 to 25 year olds what do you want to do when you're older and you say do you want to be a lawyer a doctor or do you want to work for yourself and own your own business i guarantee you 80 percent of young people or that might be a bit of an exaggeration but the majority want to be their own boss they want to be able to work anywhere in the world they want to be able to participate in the digital economy they want to be able to outsource work to contractors that might live in foreign countries even this flexibility and entrepreneurship is a really appealing thing for young people. It's everywhere in the digital sort of culture. There are lots of influencers and YouTube channels and stuff about building your own online business. That is stuff that they want. But we as a party are not then saying, oh, if you want that, if you want to be an entrepreneur, vote for us. That message is just not getting through at all. So how, David, how do we capitalize on this? uh, And I think it's true, natural Mm. feeling that people want to be entrepreneurs. It's encouraging because what Freya was saying before about the hostility in the modern world that young Australians are subjected to, I thought you might tell us that they were more inclined to take the safer option and jobs that, particularly given COVID has been such a defining aspect and influence on your generation, I would have thought that young people would want to take a safer path. So I'm encouraged to hear that there there is that view amongst young people that they want to take on a challenge, work for themselves, build a business. 
it aligns perfectly with our philosophy and our values, mm. which we don't talk enough about. We don't talk enough about. We've had all these natural disasters, COVID, threats to our sovereignty in, in recent times, which has taken us away from that economic message. Early on, when we took government from Labor at a federal level in 2013, this was a key focus for us. What can we do to back business, to encourage small business, to remove regulation, all the impediments mm. small business face, and then sort of way and there were some great achievements some great measures that we put in place to support small business some things that would appeal to the younger generation in terms of supporting young entrepreneurs as well we've got a real opportunity now i think freya not just at the federal level but the state level too a lot of this regulation that impedes people that want to embark upon a small business or they might decide to do it and then it's all too overwhelming Mm. because of all the forms and paperwork taxes laws we really make people jump through hoops in australia and a lot of that regulation is at a state level as well so you've inspired me i think particularly now we can do a lot in this space as well we can work with a lot of the people that helped us put in place some of those reforms 10 or so years ago what more can we do what's the unfinished work and i hope that that's a message that we can target towards young australians totally Can I just bring on the dreaded C word, COVID? So COVID had an influence on all our lives, but for me, three years, it's about one twentieth of my life. For you, it's about what I'm guessing, probably about one seventh of your life. So you've spent a lot more time proportionally of your life dealing with COVID and at an age when people have a lot on their minds at this pre-influential period. Tell me about your experience of COVID and the experience of your generation more broadly. Mm. How big an impact has it had on them? For me, it was interesting because I was doing year 12 during 2020. So when the lockdown all happened, really, and we knew nothing and it was super uncertain. No one knew if we'd even have our exams or not or what that would entail. For me, it was probably a net positive thing because it just meant that I stayed home and studied (laughs) which oftentimes freshly minted 18 year olds don't do so I just studied but I think what it did do was exacerbate some of the underlying issues that were already there for a lot of young people because all of a sudden we lost what community we did have which was school friends And everyone was just forced into these digital bubbles, which I think we're still dealing with now. That's when you saw a lot of Black Lives Matter happen during that time. This sort of digital activism really got taken to the next level. People were forced into basically segregated online communities to find friends and connection. And I think it really amplified a lot of the social issues being the defining feature of Gen Z. One more thing Mm. that comes out of COVID for me anyway, and that's this safetyism, a a feeling that, you know, we have to be safe from all the harm that's around us. I think the same Mm. narrative, the same thought is running through the climate change story Mm. for many people. Your generation seems to me are more, more worried about safety than ours. Yeah, COVID really, on the one hand, it made people, I think, more comfortable with the idea of a really big government that can come in and protect us from everything. But on the other hand, it's interesting. 
post-COVID, there was still this massive reaction against the Liberals, even though we spent record amounts on stimulus. And the research coming out is showing that a lot of the policies around JobKeeper and JobSeeker actually meant people were overcompensated and disincentivized to work. So I and a lot of young people that I've spoken to have claimed, and this is generally as a disclaimer, when I put up TikToks about us being good economic managers, they all go, oh, but in COVID, you racked up billion dollar debts. So I think we actually, weirdly enough, made young people more comfortable with big government, but lost a lot of credibility as good financial managers. And young people actually don't want to be paying off debt for the rest of their lives. We certainly do have a huge debt challenge and your generation is going to be picking up the slack when you enter the tax system you'll be paying off our debt and look it's a terrible legacy to leave a future generation with that level of debt I wasn't sure whether or not it was something that was resonating yet with 20 20 year olds it certainly should be it certainly should be it definitely is more than you would think really more than you would think I think there's there are a lot of people that are deeply concerned about this but it's like climate it's like a home ownership it's like mental health it's not like the left has a solution for it they just (laughs) it's just the negative messaging about the liberal party and that's just it just adds to the negativity around the party Freya there's a few ways that governments can pay off huge debt bills like we've we've got at the moment you can grow the economy export a lot grow the economy bring in new migrants grow by three or four percent every every year and hope that money can be put towards paying off the debt bill but in reality it doesn't always work that way Mm. we can cut spending we can cut spending in areas such as health education the ndis which aren't always popular which is something that the broadly speaking and crudely speaking something the abbott government sought to do in 2013 and 2014 which wasn't particularly popular would your generation be hesitant to current governments cutting services to pay off debt if we can't just pay off debt by simply growing the economy if we can't rely on that anymore would your generation be comfortable with cuts to services to pay down that debt bill i think it depends what those services are something like ndis that seems to have absolutely ballooned over the last couple of years i think they'd be more open to that but again it's about the messaging around it and actually communicating it effectively and so we could have the best policy but at this current rate it would just be misconstrued by everyone as oh the liberals defunding education again i probably should have said you're right i probably should have said eliminating waste rather than Mm. cutting services which i'm sure would be the reforms that any any Mm. government on our side would take it would be more framed around eliminating waste uh, where waste has been easily identified I definitely think that people would be open to that. Yeah. I, what for you? What areas? Where would we? Where would we? Do, we'd be doing that. It's it's a difficult one. We would have to. It's always hard to identify waste. We need to grow our overall funding in many of these streams as we deal with an aged care and aging of the population as our country goes from a population perspective as well Mm. funding grows it's always useful though every year every few years to review these systems as well 
somebody external reviewing rather than somebody who's working in those systems as well to identify where the inefficiencies might be. And you often find as a result of these reviews and these reforms that you can be more generous with the services you provide as well and save money at the Mm. same time. So I think obviously a lot of this work was put off fray during COVID when governments were dealing with the immediate challenges. I think there's definitely now scope to review some of these systems as well Mm. and work out how we can be more efficient, what savings we can produce in some of these streams that we're spending billions of dollars on without hampering the services that we provide and actually improving outcomes at the end. So I think Mm. that can be done. Let's go to economic matters because it seems to me that one of the one of the things that's happening in this great divide between Gen X, Millennial, and uh, Baby Boomers mm-hmm. and above, one of the great things that's happening is an economic is an economic difference here. So, uh, typically, people of your generation are asset poor, yeah. sometimes quite good incomes, but they don't have the assets. At our end, it's the opposite. We generally people, uh, thanks to the reforms of Keating and Howard and others, people who go into retirement now are typically much better off than previous generations and particularly with property. Now, when it comes to taxation, of course, our taxation system is heavily geared towards taxing income Mm. and not wealth. And the government, the Labour government, is now looking for ways to tax wealth because it wants to spend more. So there's this battle going on, I think. I would think from your perspective, you'd be quite relaxed about, say, taxing the family home or even death duties, would you? I don't know. You, But you'd be feeling the pinch yourself in the workplace in terms of taxation, in terms of once you leave university, you've got to pay off your hex debt. And on top of that, hopefully start saving for a mortgage. It's a big burden. Do you sense that people are conscious of this different economic story between mm. your generation and, and ours? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great point. I think they are. I think there's a lot of, and maybe this comes back to the hopelessness of my generation, but there's a lot of fear that young people won't be able to own a home. And it's poll after poll that comes out about this. Like a week ago, it was the Sydney Morning Herald. Three weeks before that, it was the Australian. All these young people saying, 70% of young people say that they don't think they'll ever be able to own a home. And I think you're so right. Income, incomes are high generally speaking but there are young people feel like they won't be able to actually own property so I think we need to as a policy priority for the Liberal Party we need to focus on getting home ownership up like immediately that should be a goal of our next policy platform because we know that when people do own their own homes they have a connection to their community they have a stake in our country and they will naturally drift towards liberals and the highest proportion of sort of greens voters voting areas have very high proportions of renters really so that's something we need to look at immediately it's going to be a key area for us freya and we want to work with you in addressing this problem and we're going to be talking to some external experts Mm. as well obviously we need to increase supply it's so disappointing, particularly at a local government level where we see, and look, some developments have valid reasons for being for being knocked back as well, but there's huge challenges here with our three tiers of government mm. in addressing this issue. And it's one of these issues that is often, it's not a federal government responsibility, it's a state government responsibility, and the states push it back on 
local government as well, and we haven't had a proper solution where all levels of government have worked together on in my mm. lifetime. I hope that we do because it's a situation that's going to get worse. Yeah. It's exacerbated by high interest rates at the moment, putting more strain on people and restricting lending, or at least that's the intended purpose. But it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. We need something... We need some bold ideas. It's an area where mm. we do need some bold ideas as well. And we want to bring together experts and talk to young people mm. directly about what we can do to make that mm. situation better. So it's something we want to keep talking to you yeah. about, Freya, mm. and others. And this is, I think this is the single greatest area for us to make inroads as a party. Because in New South Wales, we made great progress on stamp duty reform. Now Labor's gotten in and they're winding it all back. And they're saying, oh, you can only scrap stamp duty if your house is under $800,000. Well, good luck finding anywhere within 40 minutes of the CBD for under $800,000. You can, and it is possible, but they are not seriously committed to this, whereas we really are. I would like to see the data on developments, new developments Mm. that are knocked back. I think you'd find that it's probably Greens and Labor council councils yeah. that are knocking them back at a higher rate. Mm. And yet they're the ones that would complain about, they'd be the mm. first to complain about the lack of supply for young Australians wanting to enter the housing market. Totally. And all it does is it also just delays adulthood for a lot of young people because you moving out is not really an option if you want to save for a deposit. You can't afford to be paying $500 a week in rent on top of saving and then an extremely high cost of living. And so it just means, well, you stay at home longer, you don't get into full-time employment as quickly. And these sorts of family formation, having a partner, getting married, that is all just pushed back. And I think that's also quite a sad fact for For liberals, that's a matter of great concern yeah. because we're believers in the family. We think the family unit is one of the great the great stabilizing factor in our society but as you point out and the statistics are there you Mm. can follow it between the last census and this that the proportion of people under 35 who are single and that means they don't have a partner not in de facto relationships is growing quite worryingly Mm. and of course that has tremendous implications for family formation there is a biological factor at work here Mm. so surely as liberals we've got to we've got to be concerned about that and its implications long term for the strength and stability of the family not to mention perhaps the continuation of the human race i don't know any thoughts on that <laughs> yeah i think continuation of the human race might be a bit dramatic but, but I, I, understand. I would have said it's a bigger threat than climate change long term but i don't know let's not get into that <laughs> well, well I, no, no i i definitely understand that the sentiment there no it's a massive concern and the problem at the moment is there's not a choice so I understand people wanting to delay family formation if they feel like that's their choice but at the moment you have a whole generation of young people that it's forced upon because it's not it's just simply not an option and even if you're a young family and the mum wants to stay home and look after the kid or the dad, whatever, you can't, for example, split your income between the two people and get taxed at a lower rate. Why, why is that? Like, that seems silly to me. 
simple things like that because taxation is really just an incentive structure. And so we're actually making it harder and harder for people to form families, which leads into all the loneliness stuff, isolation, disconnection. Uh, and so Some of that mental health issues. Totally, the mental about. health stuff, feeling, feeling, yeah, really just powerless. And yeah, like you sit on this corporate conveyor belt for 50 years but can never actually buy a home and have children. Do you think... You know, talking about cause and effect here, we know people are getting married and having kids later in life and there's many factors involved in that. Do you think the fact that, do you you think some people are putting off marriage, children because of housing? Because is that a direct cause of that decision to delay one or two years? Well, let's not get married now. Mm. Let's wait a few years till we can buy our own home. Yeah, oh, I definitely think so. I definitely think so. Because even if you are young, and well, and this is the other thing, everyone's going to university for four, five, six years. Well, that, that's a point, yeah. And so you're in education, full-time education, and then trying to work, and then you've got your hex debt. And if you're living out of homes, so if you don't have the privilege of coming from a family from the city or a safe family environment where you can actually continue living at home, mm-hmm. you have to pay rent, mm-hmm. hex, living expenses. And so if, even thinking in those terms is not an option until you're in your mid-20s. Then you start going, okay, I might start thinking about building a long-term sort of partnership or family or whatever. Mm-hmm. That doesn't start till you're probably 25. My grandparents got married at 19 or something. Yeah, when I was at university 20 years ago, there were a handful of um, my friends that got married mm. the final year of university or yeah. it wasn't uncommon. Mm. Would that be, is that something you've encountered? Are there any of your friends <laughs> getting married at the young age of 20 these days or those challenges are just too immense? I think it depends what circles you're in. Yeah. I think I do have a few friends that have gotten married quite young but by quite young it's 22 which used to be normal well let's pick up on this you mentioned universities has been a bugbear of mine for a long time but it's i'm not fine whenever i write a column that even alludes to this issue Mm. that there is too much higher education i get pushed back Mm. but it seems obvious to me why do people need to stay at university through their 20s and leave in their late 20s with two or more degrees when in previous generations you were lucky to get one degree and uh, and that made a big difference of course to your life because then you're you're out and you're earning and you're earning more more earlier and you're not building up debt the way we structure our universities right now it's a way of accumulating large sums of debt and not income right for a long long period do you think that we should be looking for policies to address this to address Mm -hmm. the fact that perhaps university isn't for everybody or we could encourage people to take shorter courses or maybe get universities to compress their courses a bit or maybe we should definitely I think well not maybe we should definitely be looking for ways to encourage people to go into the caring sector for Mm. instance which is where there's enormous need and will be increasingly enormous need as people like me get old and we need pushing around or whatever but but that's the point is this a fruitful area or would we find we'd be seen as the party that wants to deny educational Mm. educational opportunities to people how would that go down i think this is a very good point and i agree with you i think there are too many because what happens when you have hex or it's called fee help these days i think people don't see it as real money lots of 
people my age do not know how much their university degree is going to cost them. And so it effectively distorts the market because you think, oh, this is great. This I'm getting this free education. They don't realize it's not free. And then they also don't realize how much they could be making if they were actually doing something productive like a trade. And then you add on top of that, 35% of kids are now going to private schools and At a lot of private schools, it definitely is looked down upon to not go to university and to go straight into the workforce. Which is a disgrace. Which is an absolute disgrace. And it's, especially as liberals, it's totally illiberal. You can show just as much initiative, enterprise, personal aspiration, doing something that is actually hands-on and far more productive than sitting there and doing a five-year arts degree in... gender studies or whatever that you're doing and so I think it is totally and it's actually robbing young people of some of the most productive years of their lives and then saddling them with this debt for the next three decades. As a society you're right Freya as a society we need to value people that decide that for whatever reason Mm. take the decision to pursue a trade or another valuable vocation we need Mm. to value that as much or more than we do somebody who's Mm. gone to university and it's disgraceful that Mm. we don't the some of the smartest people i know that are making the greatest contribution to our society have not gone to university not to dismiss Mm. university of course there's some professions where of course you always need to But some of the people that, that I've encountered in my 40 years that are making the greatest contribution have not been mm. to university. The system wasn't suited yeah. to them and they're making great contributions and we need to do more to value trades. Yeah. If we don't, we're going to end up with a skill shortage, which we've already encountered. Yeah. And we're going to be facing this great dilemma where we need to bring more people in and yet we don't have anywhere for them totally, to live. Totally. And I think one of the things to get around the debt problem, because even your high achieving students will still end up, and they are probably the people that should go to university, they still end up with, you know, $60,000 of hex debt. So perhaps what we need to be thinking about is actually making universities more competitive, but like subsidizing those degrees more. So actually saying it's only going to cost you, I mean, in Europe, it's like $2,000 a year and saying if you get above a certain score and you can change it depending on the degree, then you get a more subsidized place at university. And for everyone else, you can still go to uni, but you'll need to pay for it yourself. And we'll actually force those people to stop and consider, does this make sense for me? Because I think for a lot of people it doesn't and it just extends school and childhood. We could go on, of course. (laughs) You said maybe 20 podcasts to talk about but thank you thank you very much and I think in terms of I don't know what David thinks but in terms of our aim in this session which was to start a conversation going which we will continue to try and get to the nub of what it is we need to do in terms of policy and in the way I guess we communicate to correct that that problem with conservatism at the moment I think we've made a good start David a lot of policy areas we've thrown up of course there Certainly some great ideas which we need to explore more have come up in this conversation. Education policy, housing policy, and just the pressures that we're placing on young Australians as well as the society and what we can do Mm. to improve that situation. So I'd like to talk to Freya more about that. And we want to hear from many of our listeners and subscribers as well about potential solutions they have in those areas. We want to work with you all on these challenges and we'll have a lot more to say. 
totally. Yeah, we would like to hear from you because this is a conversation, I think, which is long overdue and we want to try and make some progress Mm. on. It just remains for me to thank Freya for joining us. Thank you, Freya. Thank you for having me. I found this conversation very stimulating and I'm sure I'll be thinking about it for the next few months, years, lifetime. <laughs> but really, we're, I think we're actually at a, a turning point in our civilization and our culture, in Australia in particular. And if we are proactive and if we begin to define a new vision for our party and our movement and what the broad sort of right of politics offers to young people, we will be able to turn this around. And I have a lot of hope. I have a lot of hope. And with people like you guys at the helm, I'm sure we can achieve it sooner than we could all imagine. And thank you. Thank you too to David for your water cooler podcast debut. I I hope it was fairly smooth for you. (laughs) Thanks, Nick. Yes, thank you. And thank you for doing a great job with all the equipment as always. Really impressed that Freya at the young age of 20 has such a mature grasp of all of these issues, concepts as well. So it's really impressive and one of the reasons why I look forward to working with you on these challenges. Yeah. And you can support us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Just go to menziesrc.org. You'll find all the details there. And also, of course, you can donate tax-free or donate with our DGR state. We need all the support we can get, of course. But thank you for your listening. Thank you for your engagement. And we'll be back with another water cooler soon. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening.